Good morning. It's good to, uh, to be here with you. We have uh, been doing this series in the, uh, the book of Esther, and we've seen the providential hand of God as he's worked behind the scenes. And um, so we want to continue. It's going to be a little bit of an offshoot of that. We're not actually going to be in the book of Esther this morning, but I trust that this will be an encouragement to you. So question, do you believe that God is sovereign? That is, that, that his ultimate plans are always accomplished? Do you believe that God's involved in the affairs of your life? Could I hear some of you saying, yes, that's good. You know, sometimes we, we believe <clears throat> that, that when trials and, and hardships and things like that come, it, it gets hard, and we begin to ask questions. Questions like, where is God? Just like we saw in the, the video we just watched. You know, sometimes we suffer because of, of the decisions that we've made. Sometimes we suffer because of the decisions, the careless decisions that, that other people have made. And sometimes we suffer, quite honestly, because we live in a fallen world that has sin in it. A number of years ago, my wife and I, um, we, we went out on a date and we were on our way home. It was uh, in the wintertime and, and, and as we were driving our, our van, it was a car that was coming towards us that lost control. It, it swerved into our lane and I tried the best that I could to, to maneuver out of that and that car caught my, our van and actually it sideswiped and, and, and hit every side of our, our van um, and, and my van was totaled. How do you respond when stuff like that happens? You know, what happens to your attitude when your expectations don't go quite as you had expected? My expectation that night was not that I was going to total my van on my way home. Or how about this? How about if you expect that when you got married that your wife or your, your husband was always going to be considerate and think about you above themselves? What happens to your attitude when they don't? Or how about this? How about you when you walk into your, to the boss's office and you expect that you're going to get a raise and instead that they, they give you a slip and say that they're going to let you go? Or how about when you go to the doctor's office and you're, you're there to get a physical and your, your expectation is you're going to get a clean bill of health and, and instead you get bad news. Or, or, or how about when you're, you're seeking to honor God and raise your kids to love God and, and they don't want to have anything to do with God or the church? How do you process that? I mean, how do you think that, that through? And then you come to church, just like a day like today, and the pastor reads a verse like Romans 8.28, and it says, And we know that in all things God works together for good for those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And you might respond and say, really? Really? Is that, is that true? You may be here today and you've experienced some horrible circumstances in your life. And, and you might be asking, how, is it, how can all of this be happening in my life for my good? Does God really work all things together for good to those who love him? And if he does, why doesn't God allow the suffering to just stop? Why doesn't he end the evil? You know, I, I realize some people even, they come in and they say, that's exactly why I don't like Christianity. You say that your God's all-powerful, you say that your God's all-good, then why doesn't he stop the hurt and the pain and the suffering and the evil in this world if he can? And quite honestly, I realize that's the reason that some people reject God, and they even say there is no God. And so what I want us to do is to consider how Paul encouraged Roman believers to live a life with confidence. Let's, let's pray together and ask God to help us. Father, thank you for this time we have to open your word, to consider the promises that you've given to us. But Lord, we acknowledge we need your help. Lord, if, sometimes when we go through circumstances and trials and suffering and pain, 
it's, it's easy for us to miss you and for us to not see you. And I pray, Father, help us to see you this morning. Lord, help us to see you in the midst of life. Help us to see you in what's going on. And I pray, Father, that your spirit would do a work that he wants to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn to Romans chapter 8, that's where we're going to be this morning, in Romans chapter 8. Um, and, and I just want to give a little bit of context to Romans 8.28. That's the verse we're really going to focus on. But just a little bit of context of Romans, of the, of the chapter of Romans 8. In, in Romans 8, verses 1 to 16, Paul tells us the wonderful inheritance that we have in Christ. He says, in the beginning of 8.1, he says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Then he goes on and he says that because you're in Christ, you've received the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on, and as a result, we've been made children of God. That's the position that we hold. But then we get to Romans 8.17, and Paul says that as children of God, that we should expect suffering. This is what it says in verse 17. It says, now if we are children of God, then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So he said we should expect suffering. Then he goes on in verses 19 to 22, and he says, we will experience sufferings because we live in a fallen world. I mean, can we admit that this morning, that our world is broken? It's a mess. It's not the way God intended for, for it to be. But praise God, there's going to come a day when he is going to redeem creation. Um, some theologians call this the natural evil. That is, it includes things like earthquakes and tornadoes and tsunamis and diseases and all these different things. The other part of the curse of sin is moral evil caused by man's rebellion against God and our cruelty to one another. And in verses 23 to 25, Paul says that as, we, as believers, that we long for the day when God will remove suffering and evil and make all things right. How many of you in this room like to wait? How many of you like to wait? Yeah, not too many of you. You know, I don't, I don't like to wait. Like, my birthday's coming up here. I like to get, and we're going to celebrate early. I like that. I don't even like to wait for good things. But you know, when bad stuff is happening... It's even harder to wait, isn't it? When we're going through suffering and pain and trials, it's hard. You know, sometimes sitting in the doctor's office waiting for the diagnosis is really, really hard, isn't it? Well, in Romans 8.23, Paul goes on and he says this, Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, the idea of first fruits is the idea of a foretaste of that which is to come. Okay? He says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, yet we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the, redemptions, the redemption of our bodies. You know, there is going to come a day when God's going to set all things right. When we will be set free from not only the penalty of sin and from the power of sin, but also from the presence of sin. But that moment's not going to happen until we die and we get our resurrected bodies. And until then... Paul even goes as far, and in verse 26, he even goes as far as, and he says, at times the suffering will be so intense that we won't even know how to pray, that all that will come out of us is groanings. Aren't you glad you came this morning? That's the context of Romans 8.28. That's the context. So he says, at times there will be sufferings that are very, very 
intense. And so he writes Romans 8, 28, 29 to encourage us as believers as a way to give us hope even as we wait. All right, so let's take a look at it. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And then verse 29 says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, so what I want us to do this morning is we're going to walk through this, this verse, section by section, and see what we can learn about how we can face, how we can face life with confidence. Now, the first thing we notice in this verse, it says, and we know. Just prior to this, in verse 26, and I, I alluded to this already, it says that we as believers, it says we do not know. They didn't know how to pray because the suffering was so intense. And now, Paul says, and we know. When we're going through trials and sufferings, often the hardest thing to do is to think. Is to think. You know, we, go in a, we live in a culture, we live in a culture that is so often driven by our emotions, and oftentimes we allow them to be the authority in our lives. I've heard the definition for emotions to say this, that we, we, it's when we feel the way we do, not based on the actual circumstance, but based on our perception of the circumstance. I think that's a good definition for feelings. It's based on the perception of the circumstance, not necessarily based on the actual circumstance. That's why two people can go through exactly the same circumstances and have very different emotional responses. For example, you know, take two people that, that are auditioning for a part in a musical production. Okay? For the one individual, this is their life. They define themselves by their abilities. This is what they live for. And the other person, they, they define themselves according to their acceptance by God. And so both of them go to the audition, they do their best, but neither of them gets the part. Both of them have experienced exactly the same circumstances. But the first person is totally undone. They're beside themselves. And the second person's dis disappointed, but they're, but they're not distraught. Why, is it, why the difference? Well, because the first person interpreted their experiences through a mindset that said, if I don't get this part, I am such a loser. I am a failure. The second person interpreted their experience through a totally different mindset. They said, I tried my best, and I guess this is not what God has for me right now. So the question is this, what do you know? What do you know? What kind of thoughts run through your head when you suffer? Do you believe that God, what God says and claim his promises, or do you allow your feelings to be the authority in situations like that, and in the midst of, of trials, that they, that they get you all worked up? Paul is directing believers to focus on God's promise as something that they can hold on to in the midst of trials. What do we know? Well, he goes on, and he says, and we know that in all things, God works for good. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that in all things, God can work for good? Now notice, it does not say that all things are good. It doesn't say that. It, it doesn't mean that our sin is not bad. It, it doesn't mean that we aren't held responsible for our sin. But it does teach that we serve a gracious God who is able to take evil and sin and even use that for our good. That means that everything that happens to you and to me, 
God will use for good. I mean, the prime example of that is the cross, is the crucifixion. It was brutal. It was evil. The fact that they put Jesus, the Son of God, onto a Roman cross. Satan thought that he'd won. And yet, what do, what do we know? God used even that for good. All really means all. And this verse gives us confidence that we cannot ruin God's good purpose for us. It's inclusive to the fullest possible sense. Nothing exists or occurs in heaven or on earth that will ever thwart God's working all things for good. God is so great that he can weave it ultimately for good for us. Now, now think about that for a minute. How would that impact us if we really believe that? If we really believe that he works all things. I mean, this promise would remove general fear and anxiety when life goes quote-unquote wrong. Why? Because if God works all things, it means his plan includes those things that, that don't make sense, those little things that get us worked up, right? But ultimately, there are no accidents. And this should lead us to having an ability to be able to, to relax. This can help us then to understand what, you know, when we don't understand what God is doing. I started out by talking about the person who doesn't understand why God doesn't stop pain and evil in this world if he could. Well, perhaps this illustration helps. You know, let, let's say that you as a parent, you have a two-year-old that's out playing on the street, right? And you notice that, and so you yell at your child, Johnny, get off the street, come, come back. I mean, does the parent try to explain to the two-year-old why they don't want them to play on the street? No. Why? Because they wouldn't understand. Is it possible that the reason God hasn't stopped evil yet and it doesn't make any sense to us is because even if he tried to explain it to us, we wouldn't understand? And it would be arrogant on our parts to conclude that just because God is doing something that I don't understand, that somehow that must mean that it's bad or wrong. I mean, for that reason, I would suggest that instead of asking why, something is happening to us, that we need to ask, what is God trying to teach us through it? And we know that in all things, God works for good. I mean, notice Paul does not say that all things work out good by themselves. God is the one who works to turn them out for good. Christians know that the world is not a, not a nice place. We've already talked about that. You know, we live in a fallen, depraved, sin-cursed world. But we can have a positive view of life. Why? Because we know that God is the one who is working. God is behind the scenes. We are not in the grip of fate. We're not in the grip of blind chance. The world is not just run by random naturalistic processes or forces. The universe is run by a person. And he is your and my heavenly father. We don't need to fear life and circumstances. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, Paul says it this way. He says, for by him, through, Christ, through God, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. My friends, God's in control. Now, what do you know about your Heavenly Father? What do you believe about God? What truths do you need to be assured of concerning God when you're going through suffering? Well, let me just suggest a few. And this is certainly not exhaustive. 
If you have your worship folders, if you haven't already taken them out, there's some places for you to fill out some, some blanks there. And this is the first one. God is sovereign. God is sovereign, which means, which means he's in the ultimate control of all things. And the Bible tells us oftentimes we don't know the sovereign will of God. It's unrevealed to us, but God is at work. Secondly, he's all-powerful. Nothing is going to stop God from accomplishing exactly what he wants. Now, Paul asks a number of questions at the end of the book of Romans, in, in chapter 8 of Romans. He's trying to instill these truths in us by asking these questions. And in Romans 8.31, Paul asks this. He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, if God has purposed our glory and all... If God has purposed our glory and is all-powerful, why are we afraid of any opposition? Thirdly, God is faithful. He's a God who keeps his promises. His faithfulness in this verse works out for good even when you and I are unfaithful. His, his faithfulness is not dependent upon us. Number four, he's omniscient, which means he knows everything there is to know about everything. God is never surprised. He never says, oh, I didn't expect that to happen. Or, oh, I didn't know that. That never happens for God. Not only does he know everything, but he's wise. He applies his knowledge and he always does what is best. Number six, he's, he's good and he's gracious. We sang about that this morning. He always acts towards us in a way that is for our good and he never holds, withholds that from which we would need. And so Paul, again, in, in Romans 8.32, he asked this question, He who did not spare his son, how will he not also give us all things? If God was willing to give up his most precious possession, that is his son, why do we worry about our needs, like somehow God's going to withhold from us what we need? Number seven, he's loving. That's why Paul asks in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, the thing that we really, really need more than anything else is God. The only thing that we really have to fear that would really harm us would be to be separated from the love of God in Christ. Is there anyone or anything that can separate us from God's love for us? You know, you may be walking through some difficulties and some trials and some suffering, and you may feel like you're separated from God's love, but God says nothing, nothing is able to separate us from, from the love of God. Now, a number of years ago, when 9-11 took place, there were questions about, where was God? Where was God when that happened? And I remember that, you know, and some were saying, you know, why didn't God stop these attacks? And so people reasoned that it was either because he wasn't good or it was because he wasn't sovereign or because he, he wasn't omniscient. He, and, and so they reasoned like this. If God knew that these things were going to happen, he would have stopped it. If he was powerful enough so that he could have, he would have stopped it. If he was good, he would have stopped it. But since it wasn't stopped, therefore, he must not have been all three of those. He was lacking in one of those. And again, people who reason like that assume that they can understand God. They, they assume that just because he didn't stop it yet, that he won't stop evil someday. We know that God's word tells us that there's going to come a day when God will stop evil and he will judge the world. But until that day, he's patient. And actually God's word says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So think about it. If God did stop evil right now, 
how many of us would be standing? How many of us would be left? The answer is none of us. None of us would be. And we know that in all things, God works for good. If God is working for our good in everything, then we can see that both the good and the bad things serve the purpose of furthering the good in our lives. John Newton, he, he said it this way. He said, everything is needful that God sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Thus, if we think we need something that God withholds from us, we really don't need it. And if we feel like our life has been ruined by something bad, in reality, it's playing a very important role in our lives. I mean, Romans 8.28 teaches us to look at life's troubles as part of God's loving purpose for us. So this helps us to have a balanced view of suffering. So on the one hand, there are people who despair in suffering, and they say, nothing good can ever come from this. And yet this verse would deny that. And then there's people on the other side who would, who would embrace suffering, and they think that somehow that suffering makes them more noble or more virtuous or, or good. The text does not say that the things are good, but that God works them for the good. Difficulties are not good, but the result can be good. And why is that? It's because God is at work. God is working. There's a story that's told of, of a young boy back in the 1970s. His parents were married for 15 years. They didn't get along. They fought all the time. And, and they eventually got divorced. And this little boy, is an 11-year-old, he didn't know anybody else. Back in the 1970s, there weren't very many people that were getting divorced. And, and so he didn't really know what to do with that. He was hurt by that. He was confused by that. And he remembers going to school. He couldn't talk to anybody else about it because there was really else, nobody else he knew to even he could talk about it. Well, as a result of his parents' divorce, his, his mom and his brothers moved. They, went to, uh, they, they moved to a new community. They began to attend a new church. At that church, they, the, uh, that young man, he went, to, he went to Sunday school. And in Sunday school, the teacher asked him, so are you a Christian? And he responded, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I mean, a Christian is somebody who goes to church and tries to be good. That's what he thought. And then he went to the worship service. And he heard the gospel preached. And for the very first time, he understood the gospel and he accepted Jesus Christ. That young man was me. What Satan intended for evil, God used for good. Because of my parents' divorce, we moved. We went to a new church. I heard the gospel for the very first time. And I came to faith in Jesus Christ as a result. You think about the disciples. When the disciples saw the death of Jesus on the cross, how did they respond? They lost all hope. This evil act made absolutely no sense to them. They did not see God at work at all. And that's how it is. When we look at evil and suffering, we conclude that God's not at work. The disciples were confused. They were full of fear. And they didn't get it until Sunday. When they met the resurrected Christ, then they began to understand that this was all part of God's plan. And my question for us is, how often do you and I live on Saturday? It seems hopeless. It seems bleak. It doesn't make any sense at all. We have to put our trust that Sunday is coming. This promise that, that Paul is giving us assures us that God is always working, even when we don't understand. Therefore, we should not lose heart. Paul says it this way in Philippians 1, 6 about God's work. He says, being confident of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will carry it out until completion, until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul says that God's at work and he won't quit until the work is completed. Now if our God is big and he's at work in our life, then we can have confidence. So often in life when we're struggling, our focus goes on to ourselves. And we feel overwhelmed because we think we've got to figure this out and we've got to work out the mess. And what, what we really need to do is to get our eyes off ourselves and get our eyes onto God who is at work, the one who is more than able. And we know that in all things, God works for good. He works for good. You know, many people get disillusioned in the faith because they believe that if they become Christians and they follow God and they work really hard to obey God, that God is obligated to bless them. And for them, blessing means that that's, he's going to make them prosperous and life is going to be without heartache and without struggle and without pain and without suffering. And quite honestly, that's the gospel that is preached in many churches today. But that is not the gospel. Just the context of this passage here tells us that this promise, we cannot conclude that that is what Paul meant by the word good. These believers are going through persecution and suffering even as he gave them this promise. So how are we supposed to understand? What does Paul mean when he says good? Well, it's connected to God's purpose. I believe that's a blank on your sheet. It's connected to God's purpose. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And then we say, well, what is that purpose? Well, the next verse, verse 29, tells us what it is. Romans 8.29 says, For those God foreknew, he also... For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the likeness of his Son. So the purpose of suffering that Paul was calling good is that we might be conformed into the image of his Son. That is, that you and I might become like Jesus. Now I want you to notice that the word that's used here says conformed. Conformed means to be pressed into a mold. So we have, we have a choice. Pressed into the world's mold or pressed into God's mold. Either way, it's going to be painful. And we may feel like suffering. It may feel like suffering, but the end result, being pressed into the world's mold, being pressed into God's mold, the end result is very, very different. So I want us to think about this word good for a minute. The greatest need, I would suggest, the greatest need that you and I have is for God. That's the greatest need that we have. And oftentimes in our culture, we say a person is blessed, though, when they're prospering, when life is going well, when they have lots of money, when they don't have any struggles. And we tend to say a person is not blessed when life is hard, when they're struggling, when they have trials, when they have pain. But let me ask you this question. When do we draw, tend to draw closest to God? When things are going well? When we don't have any struggles or sufferings? For most people, when life is hard, is when we recognize our need of God and we draw closer to Him and when real growth and change occurs into our life. So let me ask this question then. What would be a better way for us to define what is good? And I would suggest this. Anything that draws us closer to Christ is good. And anything that draws me away from God is not good. Anything that draws us closer to Christ is good. Anything that draws us away from God is not. Now, why does God allow suffering into our lives? Is it because he's punishing us? Well, Romans 8.1, 
already said, no, it, it can't be that. It says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So the answer that it has to be no. God poured out all of his wrath on Jesus on the cross, and if you are suffering here today as a Christian, it is not because God is judging you. So what are some of the good purposes that God has for suffering? Well, sometimes God lets us suffer in order to discipline us. There's a difference between discipline and punishment. A father disciplines his child because he loves them and he wants the best for them. A wayward child needs the father's loving discipline so they'll turn back, so they'll return. Hebrews 12, verses 10, 11, it says it this way, God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. Notice it says discipline is not automatic. It doesn't automatically produce good fruit. We have to respond correctly. So, so sometimes we go through suffering for, uh, because of discipline. Sometimes it's so that we can work out salvation in other people's lives. Think about Joseph. God allowed Joseph to go through the school of suffering, if you will, so that ultimately he could be in a position of leadership to save others. And in Genesis 15, 20, Joseph, speaking to his brothers, says this about the suffering that he went through. He says, you intended this for evil. And quite honestly, it was evil. But God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. So sometimes the reason, the good purpose God has for suffering is to work salvation in others' lives. Sometimes it's just to make us love God more. Think about Job, for instance. If you know anything about Job, Job was a righteous man. And he went through suffering, not for any wrong that he had done. Actually, he went through suffering, if you read it, because he was a righteous man. Job didn't understand why God allowed him to go through suffering. It's one of the reasons why I suggest not to ask why God's doing this, because Job never got the answer to the why. He never understood why God allowed that. But Job never stopped trusting God, and as a result, he came to see himself for who he really was, and he came to know God, this awesome God that he worshipped for who he really was, and the end result was his relationship with God grew to a greater depth that he would never have had without that. So sometimes God allows us to go through suffering because he wants us to draw us closer in this love relationship with God. Sometimes it's how God shapes us for himself. And we already talked about that in Romans 8.29. And quite honestly, I, I would suggest to you that the reality is all suffering ultimately ends there, that God wants us to become more like Christ so that we can bring glory to God and he can fit us for heaven. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now notice, this promise is not for all people. The truth that God is working for God's good is not a universal one. This promise is made to those who love him, to those who have been called. This is speaking about Christians. Because it says that we're called, in Romans 8.30, it says that those who are called are justified, and those who are justified are glorified. That can only be Christians that he's talking about. To love God is to set your heart on God, so that in all you do, you determine to please him. The agenda of our heart, then, the agenda of our life, is God's agenda. The implication is that not all things work together for good in the unbeliever's life. 
you say, okay, well, how can that be? I mean, let's think about that for a minute. If an unbeliever is successful, it can actually reinforce the illusion that they don't need God and make the worst sins in the human heart, like pride and, and self-confidenceness and, and selfishness, grow to become even stronger. Therefore, in an unbeliever, good circumstances can hard, harden them and, and delude their hearts. But in a believer, bad circumstances can humble us and make us more like Christ. Good circumstances can be terrible and bad circumstances become wonderful for us. Why? It depends on how God helps us to process that. There, there's a common maxim, and some of you have probably heard it before. It says the, sun, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. In other words... What makes something good is not a particular set of circumstances, but how the heart interacts with it. And that's a major, major principle for us to understand how we're to live our lives. It's important to change, it's not important for us to change our circumstances as it is for us to change our heart's attitude and stance towards our circumstances. That's why Paul says, for those who love God. I mean, I could ask it this way, what's the agenda of your heart. Is the agenda of your heart that you want to be pleasing to God, or is it to please yourself? If your agenda is to please yourself, you're going to have a really hard time trusting God when you feel like your goals aren't being met. But if your agenda is, I want to be pleasing to God, I, I want to love God, then you're going to be able to trust God even when you don't understand, even when you are going through suffering. It's only as we believe Romans 8.28 that we'll be able to look at both triumph and disaster and treat them the same because we love God and we know that our Heavenly Father is at work in and through us for our ultimate good. All right, now, I need to wrap this up. So some action points here. Number one, speak this promise into your life. We've got to speak this promise into your life. So let's go back to that car wreck, that car accident that I had. Quite honestly, I wasn't really all that happy Right? My, my band was just totaled. I mean, I went around to make sure everybody was okay. But I had to do exactly what I'm telling you right here. I had to have a conversation with myself. I had to speak this promise. Into, and this is what it sounded like. Okay, God, I know you're sovereign, which means that you're in control of everything, which means you could have stopped this, but you didn't. All right? God, I know that you are good, which means I know that you love me and you want the best for me. All right? And you want to work this for good in my life. God, I know that you're wise, which, I, which means that you know what you're doing, that you have a purpose in this. Therefore, I need to make sure that I'm asking the right questions of circumstances. Because I would suggest to you, if you ask the wrong questions in circumstances of your life, you can come to some really awful conclusions. So it's important that we ask the right questions. And that's why number two, I've already mentioned this, but that's why I would suggest to you to don't ask why, don't ask why when sufferings come. Ask what. What is God trying to teach me? How is God trying to change me? How does he want me to respond to this? And then thirdly, live your life for God's purposes, not your agenda. Boy, we could talk a lot about this one. Live your life for God's purposes and not your agenda. When our desire is that we want to please God more than we want to take the next breath of air that we breathe, that we want to please God no matter what happens, 
that will totally change how you respond to the circumstances of your life. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says it this way. He says, so we make it our goal to please God whether we live or whether we die. His goal was he wanted to be pleasing to God. When our desire is to bring glory to God, it will change how we view our circumstances. And it will change how we respond as a result. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine what our church would be like if we all believed that God was really at work using all things for good in our lives? Can you imagine what that would look like? I mean, we would be able to rest no matter what because we know that we don't have to be in control of everything, which is impossible anyway, right? There's not very much that we really are in control of. But we know that God's in control no matter what. And we know that he's up to good. And imagine, can you imagine how our lives would be transformed if we learned to not despise suffering, but we saw God in the midst of it and we sought to learn from it? Can, can you imagine what our testimonies would look like to other people as we went through suffering with peace because we believed that God was at work for our good? And quite honestly, if you think about our culture that we live in today, our culture does not suffer well. Because our culture says, right, you got to live for today, and the goal of life is to be happy, right, and, and to have as much fun as you possibly can. But what happens to life when, when you're, you're not being happy and things aren't going well? Our culture doesn't have resources to deal with that. But if they look at us as believers, and we have peace in our life, even though life is, it seems like to them, like life is falling apart, but we know God's got it all in his hands and control. Then they look at you and say, can you tell me, why are you like that? Where does your peace come from? So this is the challenge. You know, perhaps you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith, your trust in Jesus' death for you the forgiveness of your sins. I mean, you know that you're a sinner. You know that you can never do enough good to be perfect for a holy God. And, and if that's you this morning, my, my challenge would be cry out to God today. Acknowledge your desire that you want to turn from your sin and place your trust in, in Jesus' death for you. Now, now I, again, some of you may be here today and you've not made that decision. And maybe you like, you still have questions about that, that still doesn't make sense to you, still aren't sure about that, I, I want to tell you, man, just keep coming back. And, and if you would like to meet with, with myself or, or one of the pastors, we would love to sit down with you and answer questions that you might have. But, but one of the things we want you to know is this is a safe place for you to ask your spiritual questions and get answers. That is why we are here. So if, if you've never made that decision, the Spirit of God is saying to you today, commit that to the Lord. Trust in Him. I would certainly admonish, but if you're like, I'm not ready yet, keep asking those questions. Keep coming. But you know, for, for, for many of us here today, perhaps you are here and you have been struggling. Life has been hard. You have been suffering. And the obvious challenge of this verse, this promise, is to trust God's promise. To give up your agenda. To see that God has an agenda and his agenda is good. And allow him to make you more like Jesus as a result.
That's what Paul is admonishing for those so that they can live life with confidence. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you haven't left us without resource. Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. Thank you, Father, that we know that that this world, it's not left to to, to fate and and to chance and to randomness. It's, It's in your hands. You're in control. And Father, even when we don't understand, which is a lot of the times, we just don't get it. God, help us to trust in you because we know that you are sovereign, that you are wise, that you are good. And Father, that we have this promise that you're going to use these circumstances as we trust in you. You are going to use them for good in our lives that you want to make us more like Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray. I pray for those in this room today, Lord, that they're struggling. Lord, life has been hard. God, thank you that you do promise to give us grace. You promise to never give us more than we can handle. But I pray, Father, that more than that, that you would take the the hardship and the suffering and the pain, these circumstances, and use them, Lord. Help them to see you at work. Help them to see what it is that you, you want them to learn from this and how you want them to grow in this. Lord, that we become more like Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So how can a Christian face life and have confidence? We'll be assured God's at work. It's behind the scenes. All things work together for good. Be assured that God wants to use all situations to make you more like Jesus Christ. And then the last one, be assured. There's a better day coming. We're, we're living in Saturday, but Sunday... To come, and I skipped this verse, but this is Romans 8 18, and it says this We will share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You know, often when we're suffering, we want to quit. Paul is telling us, Have hope. We know what the future holds. And I'm not trying to minimize your suffering, your pain, your trials, but Paul is saying in this verse that one moment in heaven, one moment in heaven, it will make all of our present sufferings seem like nothing in comparison to how amazing heaven will be. May you go in peace and hope. Your eyes see.